Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode four in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 24th of February. And Leon, we're talking to... That's right, uh, Morellon Singh and Mugantan Siva, they're Indian fund managers. They're talking to us about investment opportunities for India and Australia. Yeah, India is a market that I think Australia can do very well in. There's a lot of Indian money that can be invested in Australia too. They've got some very large companies, Tata for example, one of the biggest car makers in the world. And then after that, Nicholas Gruen. That's right, Nicholas Gruen's going to be talking to us all about RBA decision making. And look forward to that, there's always something original from Nick. So let's listen to Indian investment chat. Tell us about the investment opportunities in India. Leon, India is a very uh, fast-growing market. It has one of the strongest GDP growths uh, of a developed or leading nation in the world at over 7.5%. It also has a thriving ecosystem of entrepreneurs, uh, which means there's a continual flow of new companies, uh, companies that are emerging to become global leaders that are part of the uh, investment markets. So for Australian investors who are today uh, starved of growth options, potentially, then India makes an interesting uh, investment because it provides exposure to several companies that are growing, earning strongly through top-line revenue growth, which is uh, something that we don't see frequently in our marketplace today. And does the reverse apply to investing in Australia? I think uh, Indians uh, typically have invested more broadly in their market, but Indian businesses are now looking to expand the markets that they operate in because a lot of them have become successful, uh, have built a strong brand name and are now looking to undertake partnerships with businesses around the world. India has certain issues economically in terms of its growth. What's your view about that? India needed reforms. It needed uh, the government to act in a more better way. So what we are seeing currently is that the influence of the government or the role of the government in the economy is shrinking. A lot many sectors have been made part of an automatic approval route. And a lot of taxation incentives, policy incentives have been created for foreign institutional investors, foreign direct investors to come into the country and invest. By conservative estimates, uh, India needs 1.5 trillion US of uh, infrastructure investment and the domestic institutions plus the government are insufficient to provide that. So obviously foreigners uh, are being invited to do that and it's a, it's a win-win situation for both outside investors as well as the uh, economy. I imagine infrastructure would be a key investment areas. There's obviously a need in areas such as roads. Uh, So our focus as a business is to introduce India as an investment destination for Australian investors. So really say, okay, you need exposure to growth assets in your portfolio and India provides an interesting option. Yeah, so uh, as uh, Murnal pointed out, infrastructure need in India is significant. Uh, understand that they really need foreign investment to come into the country because uh, local investment isn't sufficient to uh, you know achieve that de- demand. However, Australia has tended to be a bit of a laggard when it comes to India. Our focus and interest has been more aligned with China, given our commodity influence uh, and commodity producing and their requirements for it. So countries like Canada, Norway, the Middle East have been big investors in India, 
predominantly because they are commodity producing countries and India is a country that thrives when commodity prices fall. So they've taken advantage of the fact that India needs infrastructure and started to build, in some cases, even offices based in India to try and grow their level of investment in the country. Australia, despite being a commodity producer, has been a bit of a laggard and I think it's more education understanding and reduction of the fear factor which by perception or reality exists that needs to happen before that can occur. The Australian government appears interested in forging a trade agreement with India. Do you think that would be useful and how might it work? Uh, I think it's a a first step of part of a path that needs to be built. Australian corporates have typically not known how to interact with Indian corporates. If you think about it, an Australian corporate tends to focus on things like productivity, uh, cost-cutting, logistics, uh, to drive its uh, potential profit going forward. In India, it's more about scale, volume. Uh, You've got 1.3 billion people, a huge consumption market with 50% of the population being below 25. That's emerging over time. Australian businesses need to be able to understand perhaps the price point of doing business in Australia is very different to what you might have as a price point in India. Uh, So, uh, you know, the free trade agreement will at least start the process of engagement and then allow the transfer of IP between the two countries. And Australia, as you know, needs to start focusing more on IP given commodity influence is reducing from where we were. Are there things Australian companies should look out for? Yeah, so the middle class is, uh, you know, one of the strongest growing parts of the economy. The GDP per capita is still quite low at 1,700 US uh, per person. And what we're seeing, however, is as these youths turn 18, for example, there are 1 million Indians turning 18 every month. You know, as these uh, people come on board and become employable, their tastes also become more aspirational in nature. They go from needs to wants and desires. And that's where Australian corporates that have a product, which is a leading product, can you know benefit from, from a technological front or uh, you know being masters of a domain in terms of an IP that they can export to India if they can uh, you know build something which is competitive. Because India is a very competitive landscape, but it has the benefit of volume. To add to that, uh, India is a consumer of commodities too. And Australia is amongst the foremost exporter of commodities. India recently signed the Paris Convention. So the future investments for energy production in India are going to be more cleaner because we've committed to more carbon reduction. Clearly, India is eyeing Australia's uranium production to expand its nuclear power generation capacity. So commodities export from Australia particularly is of interest to even India. Are there things Australian companies should look out for? Yes, so I think... uh the past experiences of Australian investors have been clouded by uh, issues such as uh, joint venture projects not going according to plan, uh, the currency being uh, an impediment to investment returns, uh, perhaps the uh, cost of doing business uh, being over and above what was anticipated because of the red tape that exists. So. I think the biggest thing an Australian corporate or an Australian investor needs to think about is what is the optimal way to do this business? How much local partnering do I need to know? How much knowledge do I actually need to build up before I take this step? Sometimes in the past it's been hasty and it's not been done with enough 
thought behind it. You're just saying I'm going to joint venture with an Indian company may not necessarily be the optimal result without going through the education process. Nonetheless, some Indian businesses are very successful internationally. Tata, for instance. So an investment deal ought to be quite promising. Yes. So I think uh, one of the biggest issues are on a cultural front uh, and being able to understand the thought process of how an Indian entrepreneur might run his business versus an Australian corporate. And I think most of that comes from volume and the way you think when you've got a volume-driven business versus how we do business over here. Uh, But there is also several cultural influences on how business is done and practiced. India has a English common law. And it's got a very strong and stringent judicial system. But you can get mired in, you know, red tape. And that's what you can avoid by taking the right steps. So we feel sometimes, you know, those right steps haven't been taken. And therefore, the perception is India is a hard place to do business. Yes, you're right. Uh, the Indian entrepreneurship spirit is quite high. And uh, this is a very important point that you mentioned. Almost... 75% of the economy is privately held. Uh, in fact, the markets also represent that more than 75% of the market is in the private domain of things. So the government is a very small part of the economy. Its role is in fact shrinking with passage of time. And that's a good sign. And the entrepreneurs, uh, the names you took like Tata, there are enough the IT companies in India. There are pharma companies which are global now. So there are there are businesses in India which have kind of become multinational. The, the most global IT firms out of Silicon Valley have a lot of business that happens out of India now. So there, there are things they've done and they have they've obviously uh, made a mark in a lot of sectors and industries. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks very much. Well, as we said, um, India is a very large country. It's, probably, it's got more millionaires, I believe, than America. It's looking to grow. And it needs investment. Well, yeah, and it's common language. It makes it, a, in some ways, a better bet than China. Now, Nick Gruen. Nicholas Gruen, you have some views about the, the RBO's decision making and what needs to be done. Uh, well, uh, I was um, I'm on a panel of economists who are consulted by Fairfax, uh, uh, give, asked for our predictions about what the bank should do, and I've kind of pushed back with them and said, look, firstly, I'm much more interested in debate about what the bank should do rather than predictions of what the bank will do. (laughs) Um, And so I sort of suggested to them that they ask us not just to predict what the bank, uh, because I think that gives everyone a kind of, um, makes everyone a pundit. Oh, it's a bit like saying who's going to win the football on Saturday. Um, I mean, it's clearly of importance to bond traders and people who are trying to guess what the bank are going to do. But the interesting question is what they should do and, and, and the debate about, you know, the various things that should be taken into account. But the other thing that I've suggested to them uh, is that, in fact, if we really want to get serious about this, if we want to find out who's good at predicting things, you need a much better framework than just a tipping competition. And so we've, we now know a bit about this. Uh, a guy called Philip Tetlock published a book uh, about, I think it might have been about 15 years ago, maybe you know, around about then, called Expert Political Judgment, in which he actually went to the trouble of finding experts and then getting them to make 
unambiguous predictions, which are not predictions like, gee, I'm worried about the stability of the Soviet Union, but I think the Soviet Union will no longer exist by 1995 or, or whatever. And so he published a book on this called Expert Political Judgment after, I think, 15 years of pinning so-called experts down to making predictions about the world. And he may, he, there's some fairly shocking conclusions from that study. Some of them are that at their very best, experts add only a very small amount to the accuracy of making predictions. Uh, most experts don't, are no more expert than an educated layperson's serious attempt at a guess. Most experts are no better than some simple decision rule. So a simple decision rule might be if you had to guess what the temperature tomorrow is, you just guess that it's the same temperature as today. Um, so that was very interesting. He, he then uh, looked at what characteristics made people, made experts add something in their forecasts. What, what, what characteristics, personal characteristics, if you like, made some experts able to transfer their expertise into better predictions. And he distinguished between, he used an old fable of, um, an old Aesop's fable, which was written about by a guy called Isaiah Berlin, a historian of ideas in the 1950s, which is the fable of the hedgehog and the fox. And the hedgehog knows one big thing and the fox knows many things. And he found that experts who knew one big thing, let's say they were very anti-communist or very, uh, very right wing or very left wing about a, on a subject, they actually, their predictions were actually worse than a simple decision rule. If somebody, for instance, is consumed by the idea that we've got runaway climate change, they might predict that tomorrow will be hotter than today and so on. And by the same token, foxes are people who know many things. They're trying to balance, I fancy myself as a fox, but I would say that, wouldn't I? Um, they're trying to balance all the things they know and weigh them up and uh, they're very sceptical of their own knowledge and that actually helps them mobilise what knowledge they have. So... So, so foxes actually do better than anyone else. Expert foxes do better than people who don't know much and they do better than hedgehogs. So I think, uh, and, and, and what's noticeable about this is all our discussion of important and serious questions like what should we do with the economy? How's the economy going to react in six months time? Uh, had sort of rather like discussions of the horoscope or discussions of football they're very, they're, they completely lack rigor. If if I asked you, tell me an economist whose forecasts were better than other people's and that their, their, their better forecasts weren't a flash in the pan, you wouldn't have the foggiest idea because we don't have an environment that turns up that sort of information. So, so that's the other suggestion I made that uh, instead of just having a sort of just surveying economists that we try and get quite serious and quite rigorous about this and have competitions amongst people who fancy themselves as pundits such as myself and find out and, and actually and actually measure their 
log their predictions and check them against what happens. And over a period of time, you'll actually find out who's any good at this stuff and who's just uh, doing it for the entertainment. Oh, this is quite this is quite significant because uh, that would actually go to one of the key issues that we've noticed in the last twelve months or so uh, of the inability of people to predict uh, outcomes, whether it's Brexit or the U.S. elections or other issues. Exactly, exactly. And there are some uh, Nate Silver, for instance, uh, a now famous American statistician and pollster, got himself very famous at the time, I think, of the 2012 election that Obama won because he was he made some very accurate predictions. Now, he was one of the better predictors of the Trump, uh, of, of the most recent American election, which is to say he got it wrong, but he was starting to get it right towards the end. So he rated Trump slightly higher, had a low chance of winning but a slightly higher chance than the average than the average pundit throughout the election, and then towards the end, I think it came up to about thirty six percent. So it's not, that's not a bad effort, at least compared to others. Um, but but my yes, the, there's a sort of a deeper point, which is that our whole apparatus of knowledge is dominated by marketing, not dominated by knowledge. So if I say to you, what's the name, uh, how could you find a, an investment advisor with a great track record of, of recommending good investments? We, despite the fact that we've spent vast amounts of money, of our money, imposing regulations on that industry, the regulations we impose are very costly, but they basically have these guys and girls going through the motion so they'll write out a risk you know a risk plan for you and an investment plan for you and the whole thing comes off a word processor and so on and i for a long time i've recommended that quite a lot of that regulation be scrapped or streamlined very heavily because it doesn't actually do anything but sort of turn these people into posers of a certain kind uh, and instead uh either require or if you want to have a more low-key approach simply if you don't want to require them to keep a sample portfolio just allow set up a platform where such sample portfolios can be kept and the the actual contents of the portfolios can be kept secret but the performance of those portfolios can be publicly reported on and then publicize it and say here's a list of here's a list of financial advisors who are happy to go through this discipline you can do the same with real estate agents. You can do the same with surgeons. You can do the same in all sorts of ways. And you can have, and each of these platforms would have different design elements. And I don't want to suggest that I've got all the answers here. What I am saying is that we don't even talk about this stuff. Uh, the level of our thinking on this stuff is incredibly crude and hasn't gone any further than it went sort of in the 1970s where we prohibited misleading conduct, the Trade Practices Act, uh, and we've, we've had more and more compulsory, compulsory disclosure. And as we know, if you get an investment advisor or an investment, somebody selling an investment to issue a product disclosure statement, it can go to 120 pages and 
most people who get it put it straight in the bin. We know that that doesn't work and there is a, another way of doing this, but you have to think about the issue and craft something which is a response to that rather than some talking point on a, on a TV show. Very interesting. Nicholas Gruen, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. Thank you. So how do you feel about that? Well, yeah, it's very, very interesting. It actually goes to, uh, you know, how, how we can actually understand what's going on with the economy and with uh, interest rate decisions. Now, the news. Well, Gary, economists worry that US President Donald Trump's cavalier comments on the economy and statistics and apparent disdain for economists could mean trouble ahead one month into his presidency. And Trump has yet to nominate anyone for the Council of Economic Advisers established in 1946 to provide presidents with objective economic analysis and advice. And he's got a team of advisers there that are working on a growth projection of something like 35 or 3% for the American economy. The Fed's not estimating that at all. Nothing like that. There's a very interesting piece in the Financial Times this week, and Edward Luce wonders how long America's system can take the strain of Trump. That's a very interesting question. Yeah, he says either the forces that are against Trump will bring him down, or he'll destroy the system. <laughs> and he right. says, my bet is on the former, but I wouldn't stake my life on it. <laughs> now, to the other side of the Atlantic, and European finance ministers claim to have made some progress in talks to further provide finance for Greece. And Eurogroup President uh, Disselboom um, described the meeting as a very positive and good step, and they agreed the EU and IMF teams would soon return to Greece to hammer out details of an agreement including pension cuts and lowering the threshold at which people start paying income tax. So the question is whether Greece is going to agree to all of that. Well, yeah, it is. It's a big question. That's because uh, there's a lot of politics involved there. Absolutely. Anyway, Greece is waiting to get urgent help, and uh, we all wait to see. Yeah, while well, they're looking for the Germans to bail them out one more time. Now, Australian consumer confidence has fallen for the third week in a row, with worries about job security being the main cause of concern. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index showed sentiment falling 2.3% to 113.7% in the week ending February the 19th, and people were actually worried about their finances. And I think what weighed on it was the worries about the job market. People are now very insecure about their jobs because unemployment's at 5.7%, and it's just stayed there. And real unemployment would be actually higher than that. Looking at part-time. Yes. And underemployment. Something like 14% of the workforce in Australia is on part-time. Which means they're not making enough money to pay off their mortgages. The rates rise, they're in real trouble. Reserve Bank of Australia Governor Philip Lowe has warned that rising indebtedness could have an impact on the economy. He was speaking at the Australia Canada Leadership Forum. Dr Lowe said his words were, households are carrying more debt than they have before and at the same time they're experiencing slower growth in their nominal incomes than they have for some decades. And he said years of low interest rates had encouraged households to ramp up debt and he, he said this might see households cutting back consumption sharply hurting the overall economy and employment. Wages growth hasn't fallen, but it remains at record low levels, according to the latest figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. The ABS figures show the seasonally adjusted wage price index rose 1.9% through the year in the December quarter 2016, and that was in line with market expectations, but it equaled the record low wages growth reported, recorded in the September quarter of 2016. Now, wages growth ranged from 1% for mining to 2.4% for healthcare and social assistance and education and training. Private sector wages grew 0.3%. Workers in the public sector did marginally better, their wages rose 0.6%. And that's a real worry. People are not making enough money. And at the same time, the ABS released 
figures showing the construction industry suffered a 0.2% decline. Economists was, were predicting a 0.5% increase, so that's a bit of a worry. It is. The whole construction thing is um, a bit fragile right this minute. That's right. And uh, there's a lack of engineering construction going on because of the uh, downturn in the mining industry. Now, retailers are bracing themselves for the impact of Amazon setting up in Australia, with Nielsen research showing three out of four, that's 75%, of Australians aged over 18 say they're interested in Amazon Australia, and 56% saying they're likely to purchase from its Australian sites. And according to the Nielsen study undertaking in January 2017, consumer electric Electronics was the number one category consumers were likely to go for when using Amazon. It was a category nominated by 67% of consumers. The other top performing categories were books, 61%, clothing, 59%, footwear, 42%, music, 36%, and videos, 32%. But only 9% of respondents said they were likely to buy fresh vegetables and 7% they'd buy fresh meat. And that indicates Amazon would have some difficulty getting its online and bricks and mortar food and grocery business Amazon fresh up operating successful in Australia. Now, City Group has estimated that Amazon could pick up $4 billion worth of sales within five years, rolling out in Australia, coming out to 14% of all online spending and 1.1% of total retail spending in the domestic market. And it says retailers most affected by Amazon would be electronics companies like JB Hi-Fi and Harvey Norman, department stores like Maya Target and Big Bugaview, footwear retailers such as RCG Corporation, specialty retailers such as Super Retail Group and Premier Investments. One of the interesting things in there is how much business Amazon is doing now in its online sites to, say, the US and the UK, and how much that will affect the figures that they're seeing in the survey may not be as large as the uh, figures show. That, that's a very interesting point. The other interesting point, too, is Australian retailers are not sitting back and waiting. Woolworths has organised a task group to look into Amazon. JB Hi-Fi has a massive online service and it's also now testing a database. And so the database will allow it to make targeted offers to clients and keep them on board. And so they're getting ready for Amazon. Yeah, and I think you'll probably see Kogan and Catch of the Day, Pure Play Online retailers in Australia are doing similar things. Fairfax Media is now working on a spin-off for plans for its domain real estate brand. The company started a strategic review of domain looking to spin it off into a separately listed company and under the plans Fairfax will retain between 60 and 70 percent of domain allowing the market to place a value on the asset now considered to be the most valuable part of the media group it's a money maker and Fairfax shareholders will receive all stock in the new domain vehicle domain chief executive Anthony Catalano will head the new company and it's expected to be spun off by the end of the year analysts believe it could be worth more than Fairfax which of course will now have to rely on um, outfits like brands like Drive well that's true and there's also Stan. And Stan as yeah. well. The estimate is that Domain's worth $2 billion in market cap. Well, also the estimate is uh, Domain will be having shares at $1.30 compared to Fairfax, which is at $0.87. Cents. No, it, t- it ticked up to 94 at one point. Oh, right. That was after yesterday's result. Yeah. Seven West Media has tended to a court extraordinary excerpts from emails by former employee Amber Harrison, where she threatened to destroy her former lover, the company's chief executive, Tim Warner. And the New South Wales Supreme Court heard Ms. Harrison emailed Mr. Warner's executive assistant saying she planned to finish destroying your idiot boss after the affair ended at the end of 2014. And I'm out to get him. This is war, she threatened in one email. And Seven West Media was this week seeking to intend to extend the interim injunction against Ms. Harrison, preventing her from leaking confidential documents. Now, that's been a very grubby case. Proves one point that the corporate's 
always fight dirty. Well, this was a point that the judge made yesterday. He actually singled out Jeff Kennett That's right. and Kerry Stokes for ripping into Amber Harrison when she couldn't do anything because they had slapped an injunction on her. He also had harsh words for Amber Harrison and they've extended the injunction to uh, March the 3rd. And the whole thing's pretty grubby from the top down and uh, won't do Seven's reputation any good. It's probably one of the grubbiest corporate stories around. Oh, yeah, terrible. Now, it's the busiest week of the reporting season, so here are some of the company profit reports. BHP Billiton made a net profit of US $3.2 billion, that's $4.2 billion Aussie, for the six months to the end of December. Ainsworth Game Technology posted a net profit of $20.6 million in the six months to end of December 31st. That's down from $33.1 million a year before. Oil Search posted a net profit for the full year of $89.8 million, a big turnaround from its loss of $39.4 million a year ago. Seven Group posted a statutory profit after tax loss of $41 million for the December half compared with the profits of $7.1 million a year ago. Monodelphus reported net profit for the December half of $29.4 million compared with a $37.6 million a year ago. Caltex posted a 17% rise in full-year net profit after tax of $610 million on a historical post basis and excluding significant items after tax. Uh, profit fell 17% to $524 million. Bramble's half-year net profit uh, fell 50% to uh, US $146.2 million. That's $190.1 million Aussie, down from $929.1 million US in the half-year period earlier. Online comparison website uh, iSelect posted a net profit of $2.6 million for the first half, a big turnaround from the $4.2 million loss of the previous year. Health insurer NIB's net profit in the six months ended December 31st, surged 65% to $71.8 million from $43.4 million a year ago. Woolley Parsons is in the red, posting an interim $2.4 million net loss compared with a $23.1 million profit a year ago. GWA Group has posted an 8% rise in net profit for the first half to $26 million. G8's education full-year profit fell 9% to eight. $80.265 million. Woolworths posted a net profit on a statutory basis of $725.3 million, compared with a loss of $2.1 billion in the first half of 2016. Insurer IAG's interim net profit fell uh, 4.3% to $446 million from $466 million the year before. Colamital posted a 37.4% fall in full-year profit to $246.1 million. Fairfax Media more than tripled its interim net profit to $83.75 million, up from $27.41 million a year ago. Blackmore's profit for the December half fell 41.7% to $28.2 million. Stockland Property Group's interim net profit rose 0.7% to $702 million. The Rejects Shop's net profit fell 4.4% to $117.5 million in the first half of 2017. APA Group reported a 40.5% rise in first half net profit of the tax of to $139.8 million. Travel agency Hello World is back in the black posting a net profit after tax for six months ending December 31st at $12.9 million compared with last year's loss of $1.6 million. Charter Hall posted interim loss of $2.8 million, down from a $19 million profit a year ago. Telecommunications conglomerate Vocus Group posted a net profit after tax of $47.2 million. Media intelligence and contact marker, marketer Icentia's after-tax profit for the half end of December 31st surged 82.5% to $18.7 million. Sky Network's net profit for the December half fell 31.9% to New Zealand $59.4 million. Fletcher Building's December half net profit uh, jumped uh, to $176 million, up from $172 million in New Zealand a year ago. Godfrey's group posted a half-year net loss of $21.7 million. Surtex Medical's tax 
tax profit for the half end of December fell 19.8% to 20.8 million. Packaging maker Pack Group's net profit rose 20% in the first half to 50.2 million. Bega Cheese posted an 8.2% rise in half year profit after tax of 15.7 million. Healthscope's net profit after tax fell 7% to 90.5 million in the first half. Car Fleet Manager and Salary Packaging Company Macmillan Shakespeare posted a 1% rise in consolidated underlying net profit after tax and acquisition and amortisation of 42.1 million for the half year. Renewable Energy Company Infogen Energy posted a net profit after tax of 21.4 million compared with a loss of 2.2 million the previous year. And APN Outdoors statutory net profit for the 12 months end of December 31st rose 18% to 48.4 million. We have a much more mixed bag than last week, isn't it? Yeah, but there are still some very good figures in there. Like BHP Billiton, Fairfax is from, and Woolworths. Woolworths is ahead of uh, Coles now. Mark you, that cost them three hundred million in price cutting. That's right. Question is, how how sustainable is it? Overall, doesn't look too bad, does no, it? No, it doesn't look bad at all. And uh, that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week we have a great interview with AJ Bartia from CarSales.com. Yeah, really interesting. He's talking about their expansion into Latin America. Yeah, he's looking at markets that aren't necessarily on other people's radar. Very smart. Very, very smart. And that's it for this week. Uh, in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to talking to you next week.